Well, there's a story of a young man born to a Muslim family. His parents were Pakistani immigrants to America. And as they came over, they worked hard to ingrain uh, the teachings of Islam into their children, which included their oldest son, a young boy named Nabil. Nabil prayed five times a day. He read the Quran, even memorized key passages at a young age. When he turned 18, he enrolled in college and interacted with many of the students, the American and the Christian students there. And many of those students, again, they they proclaimed that Christianity was their religion, but very few of them followed it. Now, for Nabil, this was proof positive that all these students who were Christians and claimed to be Christians, that Christianity didn't stand up to scrutiny because none of the kids followed it. Until he met a young man named David. David uh, had studied the Christian faith extensively. He endeavored to follow it, to follow the teachings of Christ. And he really began to challenge Nabil to examine the truth claims of the Bible over and against the tenets of Islam. After three years of strenuous yet friendly debate, Nabil gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for many, that would have been a joyous day, a happy day, but not for Nabil. As the firstborn son of a devout Muslim family, Islam was everything. More than a religion, more than culture. This was family. This was identity. And he wrestled with the decision to tell his family that he had given over his life to the Lord Jesus. And he wrote this down. He says, I I love Allah. I love Islam. I love Muhammad. I love my parents. I love everything I've ever grown up with. But, he said, that didn't make it true. The most painful day of his life was telling his parents that he was now a Christian. His mother cried. His father was beside himself. And it was at that point that Nabil Qureshi was effectively disowned by his own family. Everything he knew, everything he had, everything he loved was gone. All except Christ. And as Nabil grew as a Christian, he began a to establish deep and long-lasting friendships. He even became an apologist, and he traveled the world preaching the gospel. And then in 2016, Nabil was diagnosed with stomach cancer and yet continued to preach Christ. And then on September 16, 2017, Nabil Qureshi went home to be with the Lord at age 34. He'd given up everything in his life, including his own family, to follow Jesus. But he's not alone. Many people have lost their family for the cause of Christ. And to the world, this seems absolutely crazy. After all, we would hear the phrase that blood is thicker than water, so therefore, family is the strongest human bond. But what does Jesus say about that? Because he was faced with the same decision, essentially. And when he had to give an answer, he spoke with clarity. And so we're going to read what he does and says here in Matthew chapter 12. So turn your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 12 in the New Testament. We're really following the course of Matthew 12. We've been here for a while. Again, if you're new to this congregation, we go through verse by verse to try to understand the mind and heart of God in the Scriptures and make it clear for us. I've always believed that how I preach in the pulpit is how it's going to be an encouragement to you to study your Bible. So we read line upon line, precept upon precept, and so that's what we do here. We're continuing in Matthew chapter 12 toward the very end of the chapter, the end of the chapter, 
And in the end of Matthew 12 brings us really to a transitional point at this gospel. For the last 45 verses preceding this, Jesus has been in battle with the the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. And he's battling over the issues of the Sabbath as well as Jesus' own ministry. When we move on to chapter 13 in a couple of weeks, we're going to start into uh, Jesus' teaching on uh, the parables of the kingdom. So that's going to be a, a whole unit in and of itself of all these parables that he teaches. But sandwiched in between all these two things, the elongated discourses um, and the, uh, the uh, interrogation uh, with, by the Pharisees about the, the person of Christ um, and the parables that are coming, there's an interruption that takes place right smack dab in the middle of that. And it's a a person who comes to Jesus with an urgent message. He interrupts the teaching with a message to give to Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46. While he was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now verse 46 builds on what Jesus is doing in verse 45. That is, he is in the process of condemning all of the apostate Jews in Israel who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And he's gone through verse after verse after verse, a a litany of accusations against their hard-heartedness. Now the accusation would have caused quite a stir, you can imagine, and it would have angered the Pharisees and the scribes. He's poking holes into the the practice of, of their religious system. Again, the core of the religion, Judaism, is found in the scriptures, and so that's not what's at stake here. But the traditions and the practice and the hardness of heart by which they have undergone all of this, that's what he's attacking. In fact, they had already gotten to the point where they had conspired together how they might destroy him. They're already planning to get to do away with him. This interaction certainly did not lessen the tension. And so verse 46 drops us in the middle of all of this. And it says that as this is happening, while Jesus is still speaking to the crowds, a man comes in to the room with a message. Now, from the text we've picked up here, that Jesus is obviously inside of a house at this point teaching. I don't know if he began teaching in the streets and then moved into the house, or if he's always been in the house, I don't know. So he's either, one of two options here, he's either preaching inside of a very large house with lots of people in it, or it's a smaller house and he's standing either at a door or at a window and he's preaching outside the people who are gathered in the streets. Either way, he's inside the house and the messenger comes to tell him that his mother and his brothers are outside of the house and they're in the crowd and they want to speak to him. Now, this is one of the few places in the the Gospels that addresses Jesus' family. We know that Jesus had a family. And we see first he talks about his mother. We know that his mother is a woman named Mary, very, very famous. The Gospels clearly tell the story of Joseph and Mary together, who are not married at first, but they're betrothed to be married, only to discover that Mary is pregnant uh, with a baby that is not Joseph's, and it's really not anybody's except of the Lord. It's of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's been divinely uh, conceived. 
And so despite the fact that Mary is a virgin, she has not been with a man, she still carries this son to full deliverance, and that is the son Jesus Christ. Now Joseph, he's not the biological father of Jesus, but he assumes the role of adoptive father and then raises Jesus as his own son. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they maintain that Mary uh, maintained her perpetual virginity, that she was always a virgin for her entire life, and that there were never these natural children that she would have had. The problem is Scripture doesn't support that view. Scripture never teaches us that. In fact, many verses speak of the reality that as a married couple, Joseph and Mary had several children after Jesus. In fact, even Matthew one twenty-five states that Joseph kept her a virgin until after she gave birth to Jesus, implying that once he was born, then the two consummated their marriage and began to have more children after that. And the question is, well, how many children did they have? Now, in this verse alone, we only read that Jesus has brothers. He just has brothers waiting for him outside. But there are other places in the Bible that talk about uh, who those people are. In fact, in, in Matthew 13.35, or excuse me, 13.55, we read that Jesus actually has at least four brothers, most likely just the four, and their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, out of all of these, these are very common Jewish names. We don't know a ton about some of them. We do know from history that James, his brother, his half-brother, becomes eventually the leader of the Jerusalem church. He becomes very prominent in the early church. And even the epistle of James, we believe that is Jesus' half-brother writing that epistle. Uh, His brother Judas, who is also known as Jude, obviously not to confuse with the other Judas Iscariot. That's not him, but he's a different man named Jude. He becomes a church leader and pens his own letter as well right before the book of Revelation. As for Joseph and Simon, we don't know anything about them officially. We know their names, obviously. But what's interesting about this account is in Matthew 13, 56, the very next verse, it says that Jesus also had sisters. Sisters. Now, we don't know how many sisters he has. By the fact that it's plural, we know that he has at least two. So the family would have been comprised of a natural mother, Mary, For Jesus, an adoptive father, Joseph, who then becomes the natural father of other children. In addition to Jesus, we have four brothers and at least two sisters. Now, of course, we see that Joseph suspiciously disappears from the gospel record after Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is 12 years old. But at least while he was still here, Mary and Joseph would have raised in their home at least seven children. Now, this has led scholars to conclude, like I said, that Joseph has passed on. We have the family remaining. But this is also corroborated. The fact that Joseph dies at some point, we believe, is corroborated by the fact that at the cross, it is not uh, Joseph who Jesus uh, instructs to continue to take care of his wife, Mary. Uh, We believe he's gone. Now, Jesus, as the oldest son in the family, instructs his friend John, his disciple John, to take care of his mother. He's handing off his personal responsibilities as the firstborn son to not any of his brothers, but to his disciple John to care for Mary. And we know, according to history, that he does take her into his home. And the apostle John takes care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, for the remainder of her lifetime. Anyway, going backwards here, Matthew 12. Mary and several of her sons, the half-brothers of Jesus, technically speaking, They're waiting outside to talk to Jesus. They want to speak to him. Now the question is, well, why do they want to speak to him in the middle of his discourse? 
The text doesn't explicitly tell us why, but it's not hard to figure out. Over in uh, Luke, or excuse me, in Mark chapter three, this is a parallel account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all parallel accounts. In Mark three, we read about a brief interchange with some of Jesus's uh, connections here. There's some people who try to break in and distract Jesus while he's teaching. I'll just read these verses to you. Mark 3, 20 and 21. It says, He came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So lots of people gathered around Jesus. Verse 21. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Now, some commentators believe that the phrase his own people is referring to his family, his own family. But regardless, whoever this is, they tried to seize Jesus and squirrel him away because they thought he was crazy. So he's teaching in the crowds. They think he's nuts. He's getting himself in trouble. And so they want to try to rescue him. He's a danger to himself. We're going to bring him home and we're going to talk some sense into him. That's what they think they're going to do. Now, that's very likely similar to what's going on here in Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Now, again, furthermore, John uh, chapter 7, don't turn there, but John 7 records a conversation between Jesus and some of his brothers, and they're trying to pressure him to go and celebrate the Feast of Booths, despite the fact that he's actually in danger of being arrested. In essence, what's going on in that interchange is that Jesus' brothers are mocking him. They're mocking him and they're telling him, Leave here and go into Judea that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. Again, they don't believe anything he's doing. They don't believe his teaching. They don't believe he's the Messiah. But they say, well, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and, and go to your disciples and, and go into the, to, the, to the city and go celebrate, knowing that he's probably going to get in trouble for this. That'll teach him for doing what he's doing. But Jesus responds and says, my time is not yet come. And then John adds a note here in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. That's how we know that it was mockery, because they're telling him to do these things for his ministry, but they don't believe him. So it's a little bit insidious what's going on in his own family at this point. Again, that's very early on in the gospel narrative. And so we know that at this stage in the ministry, Jesus' own brothers do not believe he's the Messiah, and perhaps they might even think he's crazy. But remember, Mary is with him. She's with the brothers, and we know that she does, at least on some level, believe in him. We know this from the, the wedding at Cana, where she goes and tells him, you know, will you do the thing that you're supposed to do and turn the, you know, fix the problem, basically. And he says, woman, what do we have to do with each other? You know, why is this my problem, mom, is what he's saying. But she knows he's ha- he has ability, he has power. She knows she received a message from the angel. She knows he's special. She knows he is the son of God. And so... The brothers don't believe, they don't even think he's in his right mind. His, his mother probably does, but we don't know what's going on exactly with her. And so what is going on in this account? Why do they want to talk to him? It's likely this, that Jesus' family knows that he has upset the Pharisees and that he's in danger, essentially. They know that they, they might probably even heard rumors. Maybe they heard the rumors about them plotting to kill him. And so sensing the tension heating up, they send somebody inside the house as a diversion to go and get him away from the, the trouble. And you, maybe you know that what this looks like. 
Maybe say you're on the, on the school playground. Okay, that's when I used to get in trouble when I was on the school playground. And you sense that there's some kind of action going on. There's, there's a fight mounting. And your friend runs up and says, hey, uh, the teacher wants to see you. And they bring the kid away and they run back inside and it gets him out of the mob, right? That's essentially what's happening here. If they can draw Jesus outside, away from the tension, away from the Pharisees, uh, maybe they can prevent him from being mobbed or even killed. But they have to get him outside. They have to get him out of harm's way. And if they can get him away from the Pharisees and de-escalate the situation, the brothers and the mother may have a possibility of saving him. That's what they think. And so the messenger comes inside, gets Jesus' attention, and essentially tells him, your mother wants to see you. That's essentially what this is. Your mom wants to go see you, and your brothers are there too. Go see your family. Now, the question is, well, who wouldn't want to go and see their family, right? I mean, when your mom says... when your mom says, make sure you call me, you always call your mother, right? I know I, I certainly do. There's, a, there's an allegiance when, when your family summons to respond. That's what they're doing. So how does he respond? Does he say, oh, okay, hang on a second, folks. Let me go see my mom and see what's going on. How does he respond? Verse 48. This is fascinating. Verse 48. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? That is not exactly what you think, he would say. At first glance, it's almost insulting. He almost seems to pretend not to know who his family is. And so the question is, well, is he being callous? Is he being mean-spirited? Does he not love his family? That's not the case at all. In fact, Jesus loves his family very much. He loves them more than he realizes that he loves them. But right now, and here's where it is, right now... It is his family that is trying to pull him away from his ministry. His family is trying to be a stumbling block to him and his ministry. And so he asks the question, who is my mother and my brothers? Who are they? Where are they? Who are they? Then he does the unexpected. Look at verse 49. And then he stretched out his hand toward his disciples, his students, the ones he's teaching And he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Now, in this one gesture, Jesus is elevating the disciples' position higher than his own family and higher even than his own mother. Keep in mind, the disciples, they know who Jesus is and they truly believe in him. That's why they're following him, because they believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Peter later on says, You are the Christ, the Anointed One the Son of the living God. So these men believe in Him, and there's women there too, the disciples, they believe in Him. However, His family obviously does not know that He's the Son of God, and therefore they are rejecting Him. And so for Jesus, the disciples now are closer to Him and more devoted to Him than even His own flesh and blood. Have you ever experienced that? where you feel like people in the church understand you more than maybe some of your own family do. That's where Jesus was right now. These people that are here with me, who've been traveling with me, sleeping on the ground with me, who believe in me, who are preaching for me, they know me. They're my family. And so verse 49, Jesus likens the disciples to his mother and his brothers. Mark 3.35, which is parallel, adds the the word sisters. These are my Brothers and sisters and mother. 
Again, this is not to denigrate his earthly family. That's not what he's doing. But for Jesus, while blood may be thicker than water, discipleship is thicker than blood. That's what he's doing here. Because our earthly bonds, and we understand this too, our earthly bonds are forged by genetics and by culture. We continue, or we're connected, I should say, because we share the same biological material. When you come out of the same womb, there's something that connects you biologically. What about spiritual genetics? Is there such a thing as spiritual genetics? How can souls be related? Well, when a person becomes a Christian, their whole identity changes. Their heart changes because they've been born again from the inside. God changes them from the inside. They look the same on the outside, but inside they're a different person. I have met believers, and I've known them before they were Christians, and I know them now, and they are different people. That's one sign that you know that a person's been saved. Not the reason they are saved, but one evidence of saving faith is that they're a different person before than after. That shows heart change. And so a person, their identity changes, their heart changes, their mind changes, their allegiance changes, their final destination changes. And so when a person's born again from spiritual death, God remakes them and adopts them into his own household. That's why verses like Galatians 6.10, Ephesians 2.19, call this the household of faith. That's what the church is. It's the household of faith. But it doesn't just consist of Jesus' own earthly disciples in his sphere right then and there. Look at what he says in verse 50. Because at first he just stretched out, his, stretched out his hands to his own disciples and says, these are my mother and my brothers. But then he says in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Whoever does this, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now he's opened this up even farther and wider. At first glance, again, it seems like works-based salvation. Whoever does God's will, they're the ones who go to heaven. That's not it. That's not what he's saying because that contradicts many, 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 many other scriptures. That's not how we understand to be salvation. Rather, it is God, God who chooses to redeem people and save them and adopt them and bring them in. He grants them repentance of their sins. He grants them faith. He changes their heart. And once their heart has been changed, then they desire to do the will of the Father. So the, doing the will of God is the end result of what's been going on inside of them. It's an evidence that you've been born again. Because even John 1.11 says, Jesus came to his own people, meaning the Jews, even his own earthly family. He came to his own, but what happened? His own did not receive him. They did not receive him. What then? Does Jesus' family, did they get a free pass? I mean, you'd think, logically speaking, if anyone's going to be in heaven, it's going to be Jesus' own family, right? I mean, they, they have to be. I mean, it's the, same, it's the same biological DNA. They grew up with him. They, I mean, his mother nursed him and fed him, and his brothers and sisters played with him. And if anyone's going to go to heaven, it's got to be his family, right? But here's the problem. If they reject him as Savior, they will not. You cannot reject Jesus as Savior, which is why John adds in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 1 of his gospel, he says, but as, as, as many as did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God, who are born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's not your genetics. It's not the family you're born into. And I hear this all the time. Are you a Christian? Sure. Oh, okay, tell me your testimony. Well, I grew up in the church. If that's the end of it, 
then you need to question seriously whether or not you actually have faith because growing up in the church, my mother took me to church when I was a kid. So what? That doesn't do anything for you. It exposes you to the gospel, to Christian ministry, but that doesn't by itself change you. Sitting in church does nothing for you spiritually if you don't have faith in Jesus. So that's what he's saying here. It has nothing to do with your lineage. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has nothing to do with your, with your physical relationships. It has everything to do with God. Has God saved you? Has he changed your heart? Has he made you new? Because here's what God does. God makes enemies, or excuse me, friends from enemies. He makes friends from enemies. God makes sons out of sinners. And he makes daughters out of degenerates. And here's the thing. If God makes us his children... What does that say of our relationship to God's only begotten Son if we are also God's children? Romans 8.14 All who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 16 The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God, and listen to this, fellow heirs with Christ. There's a spiritual family bond that forms. In essence, we become the spiritual brothers and sisters of one another and also of Christ. In fact, Hebrews 2.11 declares, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Even though we're dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Christ, even though we're born fleshly, even though we're not God at all, we're the creation, we're dust of the ground, even though we were enemies of God, Jesus, because of his saving work on the cross and God's will to save us, even then, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and by virtue sisters. He's not ashamed of us because we've been, we've been cleansed, we've been redeemed, we've been born again. And he brings us into his own family and adopts us and loves us. And it's because of our connection to God through Christ we're adopted into his family. Beloved, that's what church is. The church is not the building, not the steeple, not the 5013C. The church is the living, breathing family of God whereby all of us are brothers and sisters of one another, we belong to each other, along with Christ, we're given of the same Spirit. doesn't matter what your background, your culture, how long you've been a Christian, all of us, if you're in Christ, all of us share of the same Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends and actually indwells each individual Christian believer, and by virtue of doing that, all of us are knit together with one Spirit. Our minds think different thoughts, our sin patterns are different, different personalities, different propensities, but all of us are united. We don't have to create new unity. It already exists because of the ministry of the Spirit to all of us. Our charge is to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But we have the same Spirit, the same Savior, the same Father. Again, this is not to diminish the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Certainly, rather, it is to elevate the body of Christ as the true spiritual family of God. Many of you have earthly family who hate Jesus Christ. I know you do. And many of them are angry at you because you're a Christian. 
And so often the devil will use them to try to steer you away from Christ and away from the church. Now, our families are our first ministry. Do all you can, my friends, all you can to win your family to Christ. But I'll tell you, that's a hard job many times because they know you. They know all your skeletons. They know the old you. They know what you were like as a kid. They know what you were like when you were apart from Christ. So sometimes that is a very difficult ministry, but if you can do it, do it. Love your family enough to be honest about Christ. But when they declare war on the kingdom of God, they set themselves up at odds with all who belong to Christ's kingdom. Because isn't that what Jesus says back in chapter 10? What did, what did he say about this in Matthew 10, 34-37? He flat out says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Then he says this, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will will be those members of his household. Then he says this, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Our families, beloved, are the mission field. We don't reject them. We don't thumb our nose at them. But when they turn on Christ, when they turn on Christ, they effectively reject us. What is our priority then? Our priority is to honor and obey the Heavenly Father at all costs. Isn't that what we see from Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 49? His mother and father, they they lose Him on the way back from Jerusalem. And then they they go back and they find him three days later in the temple and they begin to rebuke him. Where were you? We're trying to find you. They're manic. How does 12-year-old Jesus respond to his earthly parents in that moment? He said, why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Even then, Jesus' priority at 12 years old was to obey his heavenly father even at the expense of his earthly father. Now, Jesus was not disobedient to his parents. Nobody on planet earth was more obedient to his mother and his his father than Jesus. However, the priority for him was always and forever to obey the heavenly father. Beloved, we are called to honor our fathers and mothers. And, And I would implore you from the pages of scripture, honor your father and your mother. Love your siblings, love your families. But I would even say this, though not at the expense of losing Christ. Sometimes the best way that you can honor your mother and father is by standing firm and declaring Christ when it comes up. Because there are times where people will tell you to banish Christ. I've, I've even seen it here in our own church. Someone who comes to Christ, they're, they're going against the grain, their family hates that they're here, they're trying to stand firm for the faith, but every time they go home, they get berated by their families Why are you there? Why are you turning on us? Why do you hate us? I don't hate you. I don't hate you. I love you, but I I love Christ and He's changed me. And they wear Him down, they wear Him down, they wear Him down until the person has to apostatize and run away. Verse 50. Jesus told the crowd, Whoever does the will of My Father who is in heaven, he is My brother and My sister and My mother. And what is it to do the will of the Father? 
Well, that includes many things in the Christian faith, lots of things that God wants us to do, spiritual disciplines, putting to death the deeds of the body, confessing our sins, spending time in Bible study and prayer and devotion and fellowship and love and all these different things. But what is the most preeminent thing? What is the core of all of the will of God? John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, says Jesus, that everyone who beholds the Son, who sees Him, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him would have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus, He said, the will of my Father is that whoever sees me would believe, and those who believe, they will be saved and have eternal life. That's the will of God. To be saved and to know God and have eternal life. That's what God wants. And so I want to follow God's will. I want to believe in Him and trust in Him. And what, what does a heart do that believes and loves God? A heart that loves God and believes in God and follows Christ, they have an outpouring to other people. If you love someone, you can't stop talking about it, can you? The family of God, the household of God, the church of God is made up of those who believe in the Son of God, Jesus. That is the key distinguishing mark of what is a church. Is there a true gospel in this church that leads people to saving faith in the one true, one true Savior, Jesus Christ? If that's what you actually have, then you have a true church. Now, the marks of church are many. The preaching of the Word of God, the ordinances, church discipline, godly leaders, all these things are true. But the, very, the essence of that is a saving gospel that leads people to Christ. If you have that, then that's what you have for church. It's not just a building. It's not just an organization. It is a a life-giving, life-embracing, vibrant faith and community of believers who love the Lord. All those who have life in His name. And what is that gospel? Here it is. It's very simple, so simple, that Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, came to earth and gave his life for us. Perfect man, perfect obedience, sinless and flawless, gave up his own life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of his enemies. That's all of us and myself included. He gave his life for his enemies. Those who had sinned against the Father took their punishment on the cross and died, put that punishment to death in the grave, and then rose again the third day to bring new life. His sacrifice was accepted by the Father and He blazed a trail and behind Him are all of those who have trusted in Him, who follow Him into glory, who have eternal life with Him forever. And so the mandate of the Gospel is to turn from your sins, to reject everything that you know that is sinful and wrong, including your atheism before you come to Christ. If your heart says, I don't need you, God, I can do whatever I want. That's the mantra of the world right now. There is no God and I hate Him and I do whatever I want. But no, when you, re- when you repent of that, when you change your mind and agree with God and reject that and say, no, I, I have sinned against God. I know I have. I know I don't do the right things. I know I actually do a lot of the wrong things. I've sinned against God and I'm sorry. I hate it and I want to be forgiven. God will forgive any and all sin that has been confessed to Him. I hate my sin, Lord, forgive me of my sin and save me. He saves you by the blood of Christ. You repent and you put your faith in Jesus. And the Bible says when you do that, you are saved. 
and eternal life is yours. Now, when the disciples heard these words of Jesus, they were most likely baffled. They were, they were struck here. Because later on, at a different time, they actually asked Jesus what all this means. And in Matthew 19, in Matthew 19, the disciples are lamenting how much they'd lost. They were telling him, we, we've lost so much, Lord. We've given up so much, including family. How does Jesus respond in Matthew 19, 27? Peter said to him, Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Lord, we, we've left everything. Our whole life is gone and you're all we have. What does that mean for us? Lord, what will be there for us? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall, shall sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's for the disciples. That's for the apostles. Then he says this in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses, that's family houses by the way, and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. They come to him and they say, Lord, we've, given, we've lost everything. Lord, my family hates me. They don't want to see me anymore. I'm not welcome in my own home. My friends, all, the, all my buddies I used to hang out, my college friends, my high school friends, my party friends, they all think I'm weird. They don't want to talk to me anymore. I have nothing, Lord. Lord, I've lost my job because of my faith. What do I have? And Jesus says in another place, in Mark, he says, you will receive a hundredfold. You receive not only what you need in this life in terms of God providing for you, but you receive more than that. Because a life is more than a job and food and clothing, isn't it? Our deepest need is, is relationship, certainly to one another, but our deepest need ultimately is relationship with God, the one who made us. But Jesus promises, he promises family for us. Not only in this life through the church, but also in the life to come. How many beloved saints throughout the course of all of church history are in heaven? How many of them are in heaven? Trick question. All of them. And that's who we have. Beloved, that's who we have. They're our mother and father and brother and sisters. They're our friends. But so are the body of Christ here. Some of you have lost everything in this life in terms of family and friends. But I know many of you, I've talked to many of you, you have found family here. You found those who understand your faith, who understand you. And believe what you believe and love who you love and desire. It's the same ethic, the same morality, the same faith, the same hope. This is family for so many of us. I know personally I'm closer to most of you than I am for, for family I haven't seen in a long time. Many of you, your faith has cost you something. But what has God promised? What has He promised? He's promised a new family. He's promised the church of Jesus Christ. But more than this, what has he promised? He's promised himself. He's promised the God of creation has promised, I will love you. You'll be my child. You'll have a father who is in heaven 
who's perfect and loves you. So who is your brother? In this case, Christ. He is your brother. He's your Savior. He's your God. And He's your friend. There's a a beauty and a value and a loveliness and a glory of the church on earth. And starting next week, Pastor Dan and I are going to be endeavoring to bring our church through a series. We're going to team teach this together. And it's going to be a five-week series on the church. And so we're going to talk about what is the church, but different than maybe what you've heard before. We're going to try to expose you to all of the Bible's teaching, all of history's teaching, to what we really have here. Because, beloved, what we have here is special. I know all of you who have talked to, you see what I see. What is here is special. And we want to understand it. We want to be grateful for it. Because in the end, this is what God has given us as an earthly inheritance of beloved brothers and sisters who love one another and love Christ above all. Look forward to that coming next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, that even if we have experienced hardship and rejection on this planet, here with family and friends, that ultimately you have promised us even more. You have promised us mothers and fathers in the form of older believers who love us and walk, through us, walk with us through life. You've promised us brothers and sisters, those who link arms with us and love us and encourage us in the faith. And Lord, you've also promised us children, those who we can disciple and train and encourage and pray for. You've given us so much family in the local church. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to value and to prize what we've been given here in the church but not just the church only, that we would learn and love and prize our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us. And Lord, I pray specifically for those who are downcast and downtrodden and hurting, maybe those who have been wounded by family and friends and even the church. Lord, I pray that you alone would be the sole source of comfort and encouragement and correction and admonishment and love and peace and hope for the downcast believer. Lord, would you minister through your word to us and help us as we navigate how to do church in this world right now. Father, we need each other. We love each other. But we do so because we're obedient to you to love one another as you have loved us. Thank you, Lord, for your tremendous kindness in giving us a family, a household of faith that loves us. We praise you above all. In Jesus' name, amen.